Dear fathers, we come before you today as we turn once again to the book of Samuel and we continue to look at uh, the first king. Uh, we pray that we may learn what it means to us as your people and what it means for us who are now people under Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, life is full of compromises. Uh, you give and take. You make an adjustment here. You make an adjustment there. You change. You modify things as you go along. Uh, I'm sure that you've made. You know, you've had the experience before. You go to with your friends to watch a movie, and actually, you really want to watch this movie, but everybody wants to watch something else. So you compromise and you watch. You know, uh, I don't know, Transformers or something, right? Or you go to dinner with your friends or your colleagues, and again, you feel like having something, but everybody else wants something else. So again, you compromise. I think that in order to go through life, uh, you have to compromise and not you just don't really go out and watch movies or have dinners with your friends. But I wonder whether we take the attitude and we apply it to our relationship with God. Uh, Do we have uh, uh, the latitude to make compromises in our relationship with God in terms of what He tells us, in terms of His instructions to us? Uh, Is it okay to compromise with God and is it something that we should be worried about? Well, we begin today in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. And uh, if you look in your Bibles, depending whether you have your ESV translation or your NIV translation or whatever translation you're reading, verse 1 is a very unusual verse. So if you look at it carefully, it says in my NIV anyway, Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Now, if you look at the, in your Bibles, so depending which version you have, Uh, It says different things. For the ESV, it actually doesn't have the 30 and it doesn't have the 40. And if you look in the NIV, both uh, the 30 has a footnote and the 40 has a footnote to say that actually in the original Hebrew, uh, the 30 and the 40 is not there. So in Hebrew, the the, the literal reading says, Saul was son of a year when he reigned and for two years he reigned over Israel. Now, it seems like a really strange verse in the Bible, a really strange sentence, because obviously Saul, as we know, was not a one-year-old baby when he became king and he didn't reign for two years. He, he was at least 30 years old and he, we know from Acts, the book of Acts, uh, that he, uh, he actually reigned for 40 years. So why did the writer of 1 Samuel, verse, chapter 13, verse 1, write in such a strange way? Right? Was he, I don't think they had drugs then, or maybe they did, you know? Did he slip his quill or his uh, pencil or pen or whatever, and make that mistake? Well, it's unlikely, isn't it? Because when we look at the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, obviously it's very well written, and it's intelligently written, and it's logically written. Now, the best explanation that I can think of as we look at verse 1 is that it's actually not looking at things from a human perspective, that Saul was 30 years old, and then he reigned 42 years, but rather it's looking at things from God's perspective. So, from God's perspective, Saul was really his son or uh, his person, his, someone who was actually part of his will for one year before he became king. Now, the reason why we say that is because earlier on, if you, look, if you remember from last year, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, which is up here, it said that uh, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and saying, has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? And in verse 6, The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, 
and you'll be changed into a different person. And once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. So I think what it's actually saying is that uh, Saul was anointed by God's Holy Spirit for one year. Right, for one year before he became king. And I think that makes sense when you look at chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. He, he was anointed by God's Holy Spirit. Then later on after a year, he was coronated, he was crowned as king. But it says here in verse 1 that he reigned over Israel for only two years. But we know that's not true because he reigned for at least 42 years according to the book of Acts. So, what I think actually verse 1 is, is a warning. It's a big warning to us that the reign of Saul, the ministry of Saul in God's eyes was actually a very negative reign. He was only God's person for one year and then in God's eyes he was king for two years but after two years in God's eyes he was no longer fit to be king over God's people. So verse 1 is like a big red flashing light which says, Warning, warning, this is the short reign of Saul. So as we read on from verse 1, we, 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 are, we are meant to read and ask ourselves the question, why is it God rejected Saul after only three years? What did he do that was so bad that God said, okay, we will forget the Saul project and we'll move on? Well, in verse 2 to verse 7, it tells us of the first major engagement that Saul uh, embarks on against the Philistines. And it says there, and uh, obviously I'll show you a map later because we're not familiar with the territories. It says in verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 3,000 were with him at Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back home to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, or Gibber, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sands on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Evan. When the Israelites saw the situation was critical and their army was hard pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among rocks and the pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now, if you look here at this map, uh, you'll see that um, uh, this is the, 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 I made it as big as possible. This is the region of Israel that we're looking at. And remember, when, when, when the people wanted a king, uh, what did they want a king for? Uh, they wanted a king for victory. Isn't it? That was the, the campaign slogan for Saul. V for victory. But unfortunately, uh, it, was, it was, humanly speaking, going to be very difficult. Now, if you look here on this map, um, you see here, this is the Philistine country. Is this the first map? This is the first map, right? Yeah. So this is the, Philist, the, the Philistine people and they've actually encro encroached into Israel. You see the green part is all Israel and they've encroached into this interior part of Israel. So next slide. Okay, so I've made the slide bigger. Hopefully you can see it. So Saul had 2,000 men here at Big Mash. Okay? 
uh, and uh, Jonathan had 1,000 men here at Gabir. So then, Jonathan from Gabir attacked Giba and he knocked out the Philistine outpost. And then uh, Saul decided to tell everybody in Israel, hoping to rally the people, but instead he rallied the Philistines instead. So all the Philistines came to Michmash. So here, so um, by this time, oh, where's uh, Gilgal? By this time, Saul and Jonathan had retreated back to their 3,000 men here to Gilgal, but the Philistines came to Michmash here, and it says that there are 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers, too many to count. So, it looks like it's going to be a really difficult battle, isn't it? Because, how many men does Israel have? 3,000. How many people does the Philistines have? Too many men to count. Overwhelming numbers. But not only that, if you read carefully, it says there in verse 5 that the Philistines had 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers. Now, what are chariots? Chariots are like, uh, you know those things you watch in the movie Gladiator? Those, it's, it's equivalent to the tanks of today. La. If you have a chariot, it's like having a tank of today. And what would happen was, uh, next slide, oh, you, you have people in chariots, and they would be moving around, and they usually have people with spears or arrows on them, so they would be like a, a mobile tank, except shooting, except shooting cannon shells, they're shooting arrows, right? And you'll know that a tank versus an infantryman, who usually wins? The tank, right? Uh, if you've ever watched a movie, Saving Private Ryan, you know, have you all seen that movie? You know the last scene where they're all trying to fight all the tanks and all they have are like bazookas and machine guns and everything. They, they end up losing, isn't it? So I, I'm sorry if you haven't seen the movie, but that, that's what happens at the end. right? So they end up losing. So not only are they outnumbered tremendously, but they are outgunned tremendously because they, they're facing these chariots and they don't have any chariots of their own. But worst of all, look what happens in verse... Uh, 19 to 22. Because 19 to 22 actually tells us the situation is even worse than we expect. Because in verse 19 it says, Not a blacksmith could be found the whole land of Israel, because the Philistines had said, Otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes and sickles sharpened. And the price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening of plow points and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goats. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. So not only did they uh, have no tanks, but the soldiers themselves against the well-armed infantry of the Philistines had only farm instruments. Can you imagine they're fighting against people with swords and shields and spears with pitchforks and uh, goats and uh, I don't know what mattocks are, but, but sickles. So here, Israel are outgunned and they're outnumbered. And what do they do? They lose heart, isn't it? Because in verse 6 to 7, the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and they hid in the caves in the rocks, in the holes, they hid in the tombs, they hid in the drinking containers and the water tanks, and some of them even crossed into the neighboring country, they ran away, right? So the next slide. Okay, so here is the region of Gad, 
Remember, this is where they're fighting in. And they crossed the river, Jordan, and they ran away from Saul and his army. Now, the story continues in verse 8. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops of him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he had finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. Now, Saul was waiting at Gilgal for the prophet Samuel to arrive. He's waiting one day, two days, three days, four days, up to seven days, and Samuel still has not arrived. And the army of God's people, the Israelites, is literally melting away like an ice cube on a hot day, right? The Philistine advantage is already large. There are lots of people, lots of armor. But the Israelite army is getting smaller and smaller up until verse 15. If you look at verse 15, the 3,000 men had eventually become how many? 600, right? Four out of every five men with King Saul had deserted. They either crossed over to the other side of the the River Jordan, they'd hidden somewhere and not come out, and uh, the odds even seemed more lopsided. Now what does Saul do? What would you do if you were King Saul? Well, humanly speaking, you'd say, well, I've had it with Samuel, right? Always late. What does he think this is? We're fighting a war here, okay? This is not a wedding, right? So he does what he feels is right. He does what only Samuel should do as a priest, right? Samuel was trained as a priest. He could offer sacrifices. But Saul couldn't. But Saul said, well, why should we wait for Samuel? Why should we wait for the priest? What counts is fighting men and I need to make the sacrifice to get God's favor. Now, exactly what was Paul, sorry, so Saul's thinking when he did this? Well, look at what it says there in verse 11, because we can see his thinking, isn't it? What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Now, this is exactly what Saul was thinking. The army is getting bigger, the Philistines at Mi'kmaq, we are getting smaller. I could not wait. The word here that's very important that I want you to pay attention to is in verse 12, isn't it? I felt compelled. I think in your ESV, for some of you who are using ESV, it says I was forced to offer the burnt offering. He felt that the circumstances and the situation gave him no choice but to do what he did. I was forced and compelled to offer the burnt offering myself. Seems like the right thing to do from a human's perspective. I was compelled to do this. I was forced to do this. But look at what God says to him through Samuel. Verse 13. You have done a foolish thing. A foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. 
but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and has appointed him ruler for his people, of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now from God's perspective, he had done foolishly. Saul thought that he had done cleverly. From God's perspective, it was a foolish thing to do. And for two reasons, right? I'm sorry, for one reason, and that reason keeps being repeated, isn't it? Verse 13 and verse 14. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And verse 14 at the end there, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Because he had not kept the Lord's command, because he took matters into his own hands and he disobeyed God, God says that he will not be the, king, the ruler of God's people. Now, it's such a radical perspective that it blows your mind. Because in Saul's mind, he disobeyed God to win the victory, isn't it? From God's perspective, he only had to wait and the victory was his. See, look very carefully. It says there, if he had only obeyed, right, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Saul thought that he was trying to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. But from God's perspective, Saul had snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. See, why, what would have brought Saul victory? It would not be the soldiers. It would not be the weaponry. Victory was only won through God. As we look through the book of Judges, as we've been looking through 1 Samuel, every time Israel wins, is because God is with God's people and not because of numbers or weaponry. God had promised Saul victory. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, look at what it says here. Okay. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. Exactly the same as what happens in the book of Judges. The cry of God's people reaches God and God delivers His people. All Saul had to do was to wait for Samuel, to listen to what Samuel had to say and the victory was his. See, look what it says there in the next, um, the next uh, passage in 1, 10, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10. That was all Saul had to do. He just had to wait for Samuel and listen to what Samuel was to tell him. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will prophesy with them and you will be, cha- be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days till I come to you and tell you what to do. So the key to victory was not the number of soldiers or the type of weaponry, but trusting in God and obeying God. That was the key to victory. So Saul thought that he was being clever, but actually he was being a fool, isn't it? By disobeying God. 
Now, as we look at this passage, it's only quite a short historical story. doesn't seem like a very complicated story. But I think that the principle is really relevant to all of us. Relevant to me, relevant to you. And I think the first principle, and I've got two principles here that I think we can learn from this passage. The first principle is, are we like Saul? Are there times where we see things from a human point of view, where we want to do the logical, practical thing, but we end up disobeying God? We feel compelled and forced, like Saul, by circumstances and situation, to compromise. We think we are actually being clever, but we are actually being foolish. Is that, is that you? Are there times where you've experienced that? Well, I sat down and I sort of thought up all the illustrations I could think of of people who I've seen who have done the same thing, including myself. And I came up with like 12, so I narrowed it down to 6 because it would take too long. But the first one I could think of was, do, do we ever, or do you ever compromise God's clear word to you for the sake of worldly success? Do you ever feel compelled or forced to do things which, you know, hurt your conscience, which you know in your mind that you shouldn't be doing for worldly success. So I remember a, a, a very long-time Christian, or a few long-time Christians telling me about how at work, or on their business, they deliberately over and over again choose to keep doing the wrong thing, or to work in a company which keeps doing the wrong thing. And I say, well, you should look for another job. You should find another career. You should do something else. But then, years later, they don't. And the reason is because I can get ahead in this company. But the pay is so good in this company. You know, and I don't want to give up this high-paying job because there isn't another one out there that I can find. Or it's difficult to find something like this. So rather than obeying God, what they clearly know to be God's will for them, they choose to disobey because they feel compelled or forced to by desire of worldly success. Uh, is that something that you face? Well, that's, that's something that we should reject, isn't it? Because it's foolish. It's foolish to disobey God because of the circumstances of worldly success. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus already said these words, right? If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry and saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. I wonder when we when we, when we chase after worldly success and disobey God, do we not show a lack of trust in God's promises in the book of Matthew? Do we not think that we're more clever but we're actually being foolish because we disobey God for the sake of worldly success? The second uh, application that I could think of is a related issue. Maybe we don't compromise for worldly success but we compromise for, for money. Just plain money, right? Instead of obeying God, we, we want to save money. That's the bottom line. So, 
I don't know about you, you know, whenever I have to meet people and I have to tear those parking coupons, I always put half an hour. You know, I'm sure there's 15 minutes, I'll put 15 minutes. Lah. But there's only half an hour because that's the lowest, right? Even though you know you're going to meet someone for an hour, you put half an hour. Why? Because you know that, that's, it's only, you, know, that you want to save money, even though you know you're going to break the law. Why is it when you fill out your tax form, there's a temptation for you not to declare as much? Or why is it you may be tempted to download pirated movies, illegal software, games, things like that. It all comes down to money, isn't it? You feel compelled to disobey God for just a few dollars. I remember a Christian brother who was very diligently tearing out all his parking coupons, many, many of them, and I commended him. I said, wow, this is really good. You know, you're really, really good that you, 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 you put so much parking coupon. And he said, why should I disobey God for a few dollars? And that's true, isn't it? Why should you disobey God for a few dollars? Why should you rebel and risk God's judgment for a few dollars? In Romans chapter 13, right, it says very clearly, Everyone, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So let's not be compelled or forced to disobey God to save a few dollars. The third um, example that I could think of was we compromise or disobey God because of love. Because of love. So, you know, what was Saul's problem? Saul looked out and he saw too many Philistines. Some people look out and what do they see? Too few Christian spouses. So, there's a great temptation where I will choose a spouse who's not appropriate for me because I don't want to wait for God anymore. I don't have patience for God to give me a spouse which is suitable for me according to what the Bible says. So I remember this, full, this woman who was in full-time Christian work in Australia, a friend of both myself and Cheryl, and she fell in love with this man. He was a golf professional. So at least he had one thing going for him. He was good at golf. All right. And uh, we said, no, you can't marry this person. You, know, you can't go out with this person. But she said, you know, but, but you know, she really loves this person. And God would honor that because of love. But unfortunately, today, their marriage didn't work out and she's divorced. Now, the problem was she didn't want to trust God, isn't it? She chose to, be, to take matters into her own hands. But I think the lesson here for us is we must always never, never disobey God, but always choose to trust God. Now the fourth uh, illustration that I could think of was we disobey or compromise because of peer pressure. Because of what our friends and what society says to us. Uh, I have a very good friend of mine who was a Bible study leader when we were studying in Australia. And he went back to KL. And when he was in KL, he had Christian friends with a very different thinking, very different outlook. 
And after a while, because of the influence, he no longer believed the Bible the way that he believed it before. Right? He says, oh, no, that's the way I used to believe it. I believe a different thing now. But the thing is, we must never disobey God to please other people. Uh, I found this book in the library downstairs. This is just to show you, actually, there are some really good books downstairs in the library if you happen to have a look. And this is what uh, J.C. Rowell said. He said, May we abide in Jesus and never trifle. Okay, he writes it in an old-fashioned way. May we hold on our way looking to Jesus, keeping clear of the world, its pleasures and its follies, caring nothing for the world's frowns and not much moved by the world's smiles. I thought, wow, that's really poetic. Caring nothing for the world's frowns and not much moved by the world's smiles. Now, I was thinking, that's, that's really a really good way of thinking about it, isn't it? When people frown at you, do you feel moved to change your obedience to God? When people smile, when you move from what God says, do that, does that move you along from what the Bible teaches you? Well, let's always trust and obey God and God alone. The only person who we have to worry about in terms of frowning and smiling is God. We don't want God to be frowning at us. We only want God to be smiling at us. Now, the, the, the fifth illustration I could think of was how sometimes we compromise because we, want, we think it's a good cause, isn't it? So, for the sake of doing something good, we compromise our behavior. So, in Australia, um, when I was there, there was a church, a denomination called the Uniting Church. Uniting Church was made out of the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and the Congregational Churches. But uh, they felt that, as part of their philosophy, that to, to reach out to more people, they have to be more like people. So, um, they became one of the most liberal denominations in Australia. In 1982, they actually made a decision that sexual orientation should not stop anyone from being ordained as a minister. And today, actually, the Uniting Church has a reputation for being the fastest declining denomination in the last decade in Australia. You see, you must never compromise obedience to get results. You cannot say, because I have a good end in mind, it allows me to have to, 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 to compromise to get there. So, we could change the doctrine of our church to make it more pleasing to the ear, to people to come and fill the church. So the church will be full and we'll have more money. But that doesn't please God, isn't it? If we disobey God at the same time. Um, we must never ever compromise on that. I remember when I was in Australia, people said, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with having uh, homosexual gay people as pastors because, look, they can fill the church too. Or, you know, it's okay to have uh, you know, women to be pastors because they can fill the church too. So, as long as we reach the end, it doesn't matter how we get there. But that's not trusting God, isn't it? That's taking things to your own hand. And the last part is, we must never play off one part of the Bible against another. Now, when I first became a Christian, I used to play this game. I don't know whether you play this game or not. I make these deals with God. I said, God, you know, I will obey you in this area of my life and I'll be so good in this area of my life that for this part of my life, I don't want to obey you. Do you ever play that game with God? I don't know, maybe you don't. I only, only I play these sort of games, right? 
but, 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 but it's, it's true, isn't it? Sometimes we play these games with God. And that's what the commentary said. I, I think I sort of agree. If you look at um, verse 10, Saul doesn't seem very disturbed when Samuel comes. He, 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 he doesn't feel, it doesn't seem as if he's very affected by what he did, that he did the sacrifices and didn't really wait for Samuel. And I think some commentary made the point that, look, in Saul's mind, he already did what he needed to do. Look, you know, Saul, Samuel Saul said to Samuel, look, you asked me to come to Gilgal, here I am, right? I can tick that box. You asked me to wait, I waited six and three quarter days, I can half tick that box. So I must be okay, isn't it? But God doesn't work that way, isn't it? God doesn't do exchanges. He doesn't say, you know, it's not like um, your O-levels or your A-levels or your PSLE, what, okay, you know, I get a three A's in one subject, then I can pull up my, my Chinese, right? Then I can still do better. God wants us to be obedient in everything. We cannot say, oh, God says that we must love. So if I really love people, I can ignore something else. Or I can ignore something else in order to do this. So, finally, as Christians, when we are faced with the temptation, how do we stand and trust and obey God even when circumstances are really tough, when we don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend who's Christian, when the job is difficult and we are tempted to, to stick with it, even though we should really leave because it's, it's sinful, how do we persevere? Well, the answer is the reality of Jesus. Because we are in Jesus, we know that there is more to life than this life. And there is a greater life to look forward to. And we know that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And to look forward to that future means to keep trusting and obeying in Jesus. So if you look here in 2 Corinthians, up here, right? So with the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. So we know that because Jesus is risen from the dead, we will also rise with Jesus because God has done that before. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. So we've all received God's grace and it's overflowing to other people. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that are far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Okay, next slide. Chapter 5. So we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from Him. So when you look at this passage, when you are faced with temptation, the question you should ask yourself is, are you living by faith or are you living by sight? Will you trust in the promises of God, in the promise of eternal life, rather than dwell in the circumstances and the situation of today? See, I remember um, reading this article. But I don't know whether Oprah, Oprah Winfrey is a Christian. You all know who Oprah Winfrey is, right? So Oprah Winfrey said, Oh, I've seen the future and it's blindingly bright. And I thought, well, that's how it should be as a Christian, isn't it? 
If you've seen the future as a Christian, it is blindingly bright. So if it is blindingly bright, why would you give it up? Because of the short-term momentary struggles that you face today. Now the second application, so the first application is we, how do we get tempted like Saul? But I think the second application is it shows that human beings are fallible. I'm fallible. We are all fallible. And we should never put our absolute trust and faith on a human being. See, King Saul was the leader of God's people. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit of God, yet he failed miserably. The lesson is, you can never put your faith in a human being because they will fail. Now, I think most people would say, I, uh, I never put faith in it. You know, some human being, right? And uh, least of all, don't put faith in the pastor, hopefully, right? But I think subconsciously people do. I think subconsciously people do. Because I've met so many ex-Christians, and I'm sure you have met ex-Christians too, too, and you ask them, why did you stop being a Christian? Why did you stop going to church? And the answer they'll skip is, oh, because, you know, my Bible study leader committed adultery. Or my pastor ran away from the church and did such and such. Or my mentor, the person who mentored me in Christ, did such and such and fell away as a Christian. And that's why I don't go to church anymore and I'm not a Christian. Now, when people say that to me, then obviously you put too much faith and trust in this person, isn't it? Because how can your relationship with Jesus, who is God, be affected because another creature fell? Because that creature, as great and exalted a person that can be, is not Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is God's Son. We are supposed to put our faith and trust in Jesus alone. So, unfortunately, King Saul was foolish and he did not keep God's commands. But Jesus is different. And as we did, we saw in Hebrews chapter 5 and as you know in the Bible, when Jesus was baptized, God said, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. He didn't say he was foolish, right? Luke chapter 9, a voice from the cloud at the transfiguration said, This is my son whom I've chosen, listen to him. So who should we listen to? Who should we put our faith in? Not in a human leader, but in the leader who God has chosen for eternity, his son Jesus. So in conclusion, basically today's passage is all about faith and trust, isn't it? Faith, trust and obedience. Now we didn't get to sing the song today. I don't know, maybe you do. I didn't check my bulletin. But one of the songs we often sing is Trust and Obey, isn't it? Um, I always remember the chorus only, I Trust and Obey. But actually, when you look at the lyrics, it's actually very, very biblical, isn't it? See, as you walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on, his, on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still with all who will trust and obey. And then the last stanza, then in fellowship suite, we will sit at his feet, or we will walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. Now theologically, it's just such a powerful thing, because as we are in Jesus, as we walk in Jesus, 
as we sit at His feet in fellowship, as we walk by His side, He abides in us. He is with us. He watches over us. And as He watches over us, what do we do? All we have to do is to trust and obey and to never fear. What wonderful and encouraging words those are on there. Because ultimately, that was the mistake of King Saul, wasn't it? He didn't trust and he didn't obey. He feared and he did what he thought was clever and he took things into his own hands. So let us, let us never do that, but always to trust and obey Jesus instead. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly help us to see that we must never take matters into our own hands. We must never be more clever than we are. Dear Father, may we always only trust and obey. Teach us to see the greater reality than what faces us today. Whatever our status in life is, whatever fears we may have, you know them better than we do. Help us to only have faith in you to carry us through. Through to the wonderful and uh, glorious eternity that you prepared for us. May we always walk in the light of Jesus. May we always be with Him and in Him. And that we may always trust and obey what You've told us to do in Jesus. And we pray for all these things in His name. Amen.